Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 29th of July, 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. Well, what don't you want if you're in a bubble, Mike? Uh, you don't want a spike. You don't want a spike. You no. don't want a spike, but spikes are, are coming now. So uh, this is Professor David Navarro, who's uh, the World Health Organization's special envoy, uh, speaking to LBC. Uh, earlier and uh, saying, well, he was asked the question, has Boris Johnson made the right call based on uh, available information? This is with respect to quarantining uh, travellers coming back from Spain. Uh, he said that uh, certainly this is a very difficult time all over Europe because there are going to be resurgences of this virus. Uh, actually, I've never liked the term wave, he said, to describe this virus and the disease it causes. I prefer to talk about spikes. Um, so we're going to have spikes, lots of them. Uh, he said, uh, "Spikes are here and there. Going to be a lot of. They're going to be a lot. Sorry, spikes <laughs> are here, and there are going to be a lot of them in the coming weeks or months. Uh, so lots of spikes. Um, well, I have to say that uh, Caroni is confused. Uh, Caroni doesn't quite understand this because uh, the question is, does it matter if there are spikes at this point? Uh, as we know, uh, doctors in Italy uh, saying that coronavirus is clinically dead." Uh, in other words, uh, there is enough immunity about uh, to make it pretty much ineffective. And that seems to be reflected in the uh, statistics. So here are the hospital admissions in England. So it doesn't really matter how many cases there are. The question is how many people are ending up in hospital, how many people are getting seriously ill and how many people are dying. You can have, you know, we can have case after case after case, but if they don't need hospitalization because they've got a level of immunity that doesn't require it, then it's not, it's not an issue for us. So, you know, the NHS, there's the, the peak. Uh, the NHS was not overwhelmed at that point. Now, there are many reasons why that was, mainly because the NHS was otherwise shut down except for, for COVID. Um, and, but nonetheless, it wasn't, it wasn't overwhelmed in April uh, at the peak. Uh, and it's certainly not overwhelmed now. Uh, and so why are we so concerned about these spikes? Uh, Brian, uh, ministers apparently have been told not to panic yet about uh, about these spikes. Uh, this is uh, a senior, what's being described as a senior advisor. Uh, he was speaking to the Mail, uh, saying that uh, Boris is extremely concerned about the, the spikes that are bubbling up. Uh, yeah, there you go, lots of language there. Uh, but uh, Paul Hunter, who's the infectious disease specialist at the University of East Anglia, was saying, give it a couple of weeks before we start panicking. Um, and uh, well, there you go. But uh, just looking looking at that particular graph and the similarity then to the uh, the, the numbers of deaths, uh, it's pretty clear that there is no problem at the moment. Uh, and uh, so, and except for the the propaganda and the fear mongering. Well, and that's key to it, Mike, isn't it? Because that's exactly what's going on. And of course, the BBC last couple of days uh, desperately worried that people are beginning to challenge uh, face masks and ask questions. And as we're going to see in today's news, the BBC just desperate uh, to keep the fear around uh, COVID-19 as high as possible. Uh, well, not just the fear, uh, also the propaganda. So this was the BBC Today. Young people driving Europe virus spike, according to the World Health Organization, or at least that's how the BBC is presenting it. Uh, OK, I think I've heard this kind of narrative before in the last couple of years, because if we go back to Brexit, the gap between the young and the old has turned Britain into a dysfunctional family in The Guardian. Uh, then we've got LSE here, generation wars over Brexit and beyond, how young and old are divided over social values. 
uh, my generation, baby, the politics of age in Brexit Britain from the Resolution Foundation, even the Wall Street Journal getting involved. Uh, should we stay or should we go? UK's Brexit generation gap widens. So I was just thinking about how COVID and coronavirus are the, is just a gift that keeps on giving here because we've got the generation gap narrative, the young versus the old that we've seen over the last two or three years. We've got the race narrative. We'll be talking about that a little bit later. We've got the, econo the, the, the economic situation uh, where, you know, We've got people yeah. saying that we don't want to see some companies coming back after this, which leads into the environment narrative, uh, surveillance, global governance, the breakup of the UK, the city's agenda, regional devolution, this yeah, kind of thing. This, is... this sort of stuff is all being structured under COVID and under coronavirus. Uh, and uh, But these were all policies that, that the government was struggling to get in in the, in the, year, uh, in the years leading up to today. Yeah. So it's just amazing how this thing is, is uh, uh, providing the, the impetus and the, and the cover for it. Yeah. Uh, so we've got a massive attack on the country at the moment. Where's that attack coming from? We say it's coming from what is effectively a government of occupation. This is nothing to do with peaceful governance of UK. This is a malicious political agenda which is designed to destroy really anything and everything that's uh, good or remaining that's good in this in this country. And we can see it so clearly. And as you say, Mike, as long as they can keep the public mind locked into fear over COVID-19, as long as they can keep the public walking around in masks, they're going to be able to control the public mind. And we're giving more evidence today to show exactly how the government is doing some of these things. So uh, before we leave Spite, um, we're delighted at the amount of um, emails we're getting from viewers. Uh, this is one that uh, came in last night. Firstly, may I thank all of you for the valuable work you do. I've never really given vaccines much thought until recently, but the more I hear and see, the more troubled I am. I quite often refer, refer to the Euromomo excess mortality graphs, a strange hobby I know, most recently to see if there were any signs of the second wave. And I noticed several countries do not have winter excess mortality spikes. Norway and Estonia as examples, and wondered if there was any correlation with the amount of winter flu inoculations. Due to limited time, I've not pursued this line of thought in any great depth, but I have established that Norway has a fairly low take up of winter flu vaccinations. I'm beginning to think most vaccinations are nothing more than a money spinner for big pharma at the expense of people's lives. Hope this is of interest. Well, I think we would say that this is a really excellent email because we are just delighted to see so many people now taking it upon themselves to dig and research and question um, information that they're finding over the Internet. And of course, information that's coming across in the public domain. Could it be that uh, Norway is so healthy because they're not taking the vaccine? I think there could well be some truth in that. That's my personal opinion. But we'll see if we can uh, produce some more evidence on that. Well, let's um, stay on COVID, but um, just have a look at this remarkable headline from Scotland. Scottish National Party MSP Stuart Stevenson says he's considering wearing a face mask, quote, for the rest of his life, unquote. Uh, so that's it. And he's man man mounted a staunch defence 
of anti-coronavirus face coverings. Now, you're probably thinking this can't be true, but it is true. Here he is. He said, I suspect that for the rest of my life, I shall wish to wear a face mask to protect others from the risk that I might infect them. This is standard practice in many countries in the Far East and has been for many years. So he doesn't actually say, Mike, that he is going to wear a mask. He says he suspects that for the rest of his life he shall wish. Yes. This is very convoluted uh, uh, grammar. Uh, is he unsure? Um, does he actually know what he's talking about? It's a bit of Sopian. It's a bit of Sopian. Uh, then he goes on to say this remarkable statement. It's a fallacy amongst non-asthmatics that asthma makes it difficult to breathe in. A mask does not inhibit your breathing out at all. Yes. Do, you, do you think that his, his problem here is that actually he's suffering from a lack of oxygen because he's wearing a mask and he can't actually formulate the words properly? I don't know. I don't know what this man is talking about. But actually, what I think he's talking about is unbelievably dangerous. And what he's really saying is that mankind can't really manage to exist in the world anymore without technology, in this case a mask. And therefore, poor mankind is going to have to be propped up uh, with bits of cloth strapped over their face in order to carry out daily living and life. Yeah, I don't think we could describe face masks as technology. Uh, well, <laughs> we could have a discussion on that. So uh, where do we go for advice on face coverings? Well, of course, we have to go to the government's own website. And I just want to point out here that it says the best available scientific evidence is that when used correctly, wearing a face covering may reduce the spread of coronavirus droplets in certain circumstances, helping to protect others. So that's yeah, th pretty... This is, this is like, uh, the, like an advertisement for you know, face cream <laughs> or something about may yeah. remove wrinkles. May remove wrinkles. Uh, no, this doesn't work. It doesn't. So we want to know where is the best available scientific evidence, and if it exists, why is this evidence not part of a formal quantitative medical risk assessment on face masks. And of course, that risk assessment does not exist. The British government dare not produce a formal medical risk assessment because if they did, uh, the subjects of, of oxygen and CO2 would have to be covered and they don't want to go near this subject. Now, can I just say thanks to everybody who's been letting us yeah. know about their efforts on, face, on risk assessments because Huge numbers of people asking this question. Well, indeed they have, Mike, and, and uh, we, can, we can show some of the good work here because we've got a number of emails that people have been writing to their MPs. So we'll start off with the first one. I wrote to my MP, Ben Wallace, asking specifically for the evidence that mask wearing is safe and effective or links or for him to provide links to that evidence. As, as with previous emails, he avoided the point by regurgitating unsupported statements. If you wish to see the email, uh, please let me know. I've also sent three emails to the Prime Minister about COVID restrictions, but never receive a response regards Peter. So what did Peter have to say to his MP? Well, I've taken a chunk out of it because this is really the meat. Because the government is insistent upon ignoring a large proportion of the public and credible scientists with regard to the correct way to deal with this disease, and in the process causing more illness, death, misery and suffering in people's lives. I strongly resist the imposition on my freedom and therefore require that you send me either documents or links to documents 
that proved the safety and efficacy of mask wearing as a general public health measure and support your reasons for imposing it. Please do not send me the regurgitated government or health service spiel. I require the empirical evidence or links to the evidence that demonstrates safety and efficacy. So he then goes on to, to uh, criticise the government and says, uh, for, unfortunately, the bewildered herd are only too fearful and consequently willing to remain confused and fall in line. So he's talking about the public there. But uh, what did Mr. Ben Wallace have to say? Well, this is his reply. I struggled with this, Mike, because there was so much here. I didn't know how to present it on screen. And the only solution was to put it into a little video so that we got the full effect. So hopefully that's going to play. But essentially, this was just every bit of, of government advice without evidence cobbled together into what presumably was supposed to be a very impressive and detailed reply to the gentleman's question. Well, of course, Ben Wallace didn't give any um, satisfactory evidence to answer the original email. Um, so this was a lengthy, well-padded letter, but it simply spewed out the vagarisms of the government advice. Well, of course, if there isn't any evidence, you can't present it. Indeed. So this is why we are pushing for people to use this expression, the medical risk assessment. And when you get one of these letters from the MPs, you go straight back and say, where is the medical risk assessment? So um, this one, we've got a, an email that was sent to Chris Philp MP. Dear Chris, hope you're well. Because of a breathing difficulty, I'm not required to wear a face mask on public transport. However, it's unclear whether I need to wear one while shopping in a store. Well, that's changed, obviously. Well, it hasn't for people who've got problems. Can you confirm that I do need to wear one while shopping as it causes me distress, anxiety and breathing difficulties? However, I don't want to be breaking the law. Can you also advise what health and safety risk assessment has been carried out with the government to identify the hazards and health dangers of wearing face masks in different contexts? So short, sharp email. Uh, this was the reply from the gentleman concerned, Chris uh, Felp. Uh, he says, thank you for taking the time to contact me regarding face masks. He then gives the government's uh, useless guidance. So there's no evidence or facts or any details there. Uh, he gives another reference. So this is a much shorter letter. Um, so this is short. Let's get rid of the problem quickly. But no proper evidence provided back to the member of public at all. And um, we've got another one here uh, where Chris Whitaker MP was approached. And uh, the gentleman sent Chris Whitaker an independent article from a few days ago. Uh, this was the article, Coronavirus Face Masks Could Increase the Risk of Infection, Medical Chief Warns. So you can still find that article with an embedded vi video where the lady who is a medical uh, ex uh, expert or professional expert um, says masks are dangerous. You've got to watch what you're doing with them. Um, and this is the reply. Craig has asked me to contact you to thank you for your email with a reference. I would thank you for the information you provided. I'll pass it on. Interestingly, there are a large number of people who have their own views as to whether or not we should or should not be wearing masks. Personally, I'm not convinced. Um, and then it goes on. It gets interesting because it says um, 
I do understand that the duty of the Prime Minister is to protect lives and therefore being provided with this advice and not acted on this could be seen as being uh, as to be irresponsible. One cannot do right for doing wrong. We have had emails representing both sides and I would say that it's 50-50. So um, this is a skilled letter and thank you for your opinion that means we don't really care with what you've said so opinion is used to placate real concerns no action is going to be taken but conveniently according to this the public have 50 50 split over masks do you believe that mike uh, um, i 50 50 more or less i think right and i and i think because i, I have no evidence to back this up i just have a feeling uh, based on what i've seen yeah. uh, that the split is probably very similar to the split in the country over Brexit. Over Brexit, yeah, yes. that's an interesting one, isn't it? So um, where do we go for information? Well, big thank you to a viewer who said, have you seen this one from the Royal Society? This is the 26th of June. Face masks and coverings for the general public. Behavioural knowledge, effectiveness of cloth coverings and public messaging. Um, so this is the summary cloth face coverings are effective in reducing source virus transmission i.e outward uh, protection of others when they're of optimal material construction uh, then goes on to talk about social behavioral factors we'll come back to that face masks and coverings cannot be seen in isolation but are part of a pol uh, policy packages and it's imperative to review interrelated non-pharmaceutical interventions You've got all that language, Mike, it's yes. very important. So if you go through the document, it gets interesting, international face mask and covering policies. And they quote this one, the majority of the face mask policies were inaugurated on March the 14th, three days after the WHO declaration of the coronavirus outbreak as a pandemic. On April the 6th, 2020, the World Health Organization recommended that healthy people in the community did not need to wear a mask and that they should be worn only by those who are feeling unwell and are coughing and sneezing, as well as caring for someone uh, who is infected. So that's pretty straightforward. And it goes on because it also quotes the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, uh, where they stated that there was no evidence that non-medical face masks or other face covers are an effective means of respiratory protection. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing that consistently there had been very good advice that face masks were just not worth uh, the cloth they were printed on. Well, indeed. And in fact, this is uh, nothing new uh, because, of course, uh, the comparisons with the 1918-1919 Spanish flu uh, keep coming. Um, well, let's make a comparison because here's a study of measures adopted for control of the uh, Spanish flu in 1919 uh, by Wilfred Kellogg. This was for the uh, uh, for the state of California. Uh, and in the section on face masks, uh, it says this, notwithstanding the fact that the very complete records at the disposal of the California State Board of Health indicate conclusively that the compulsory wearing of masks does not affect the progress of, epide of the epidemic. So in other words, it has no uh, it, it creates no barrier to the spread of the disease. Now, this was Spanish flu we were talking about. Many people will say, well, of course, Spanish flu, coronavirus, two completely separate things. Well, you can't have it both ways because Spanish flu keeps being held up by the mainstream uh, argument as, as the way to react to 
uh, coronavirus. So there are many, many comparisons made in the mainstream between the two. Um, and uh, uh, so it goes on to say this. Another most important reason for the fear of the mask when universally worn lies in the fact uh, that the majority of masks worn under compul compulsory ordinances were not properly made and could not reasonably be expected to have any value whatever. And many instances were observed where the mask consisted of only one or two layers of very coarse mesh gauze and the majority of the masks furnished by the Red Cross, which, were, which probably made up the bulk of those used, were undeniably too light and coarse in texture and so on. So uh, the wrong materials being used, and that's exactly what we have uh, in this case as well. So setting aside the discussion for, for the sake of this uh, little bit uh, on uh, whether it's sensible to wear them from a health point of view or not, uh, the, the fact is that, that uh, the, the evidence from 1919 in California was very clear that the masks that mask wearing made no difference to the spread of the virus whatsoever. Uh, and in any case, uh, most of the masks that were being worn were inappropriate and not uh, not suitable. Uh, and that is, again, exactly the same type of thing. So I think that uh, what this, you know, what the, all the evidence is showing here, Brian, is that uh, the issue of masks is nothing whatever to do with saving lives or protecting people or making sure that you don't infect anybody else. It's just about behavioral modification. Yeah. It's just about softening the population up for the draconian measures that are already in place and more that are coming. Yeah, vaccines in particular, but softening the public up. This is about the government using applied psychology to control people. This is a test to see how much they can control people. And of course, they've got people walking around in beautiful fresh air and sunshine wearing a mask in order to protect themselves. And we're going to show a bit more of this uh, shortly. But uh, of course, masks not all bad. Uh, well, no, uh, because uh, this was in the, in the Independent a couple of days. Uh, and the headline is, as a woman, I find uh, wearing a face mask liberating. I'm no longer judged on my appearance. So that was the headline. And the article is very clear that uh, the person uh, uh, writing this is very keen uh, that, uh, that she's not judged. Um, well, we know where this ends, Brian, uh, because there's plenty of evidence for where it goes. Uh, it ends with the burqa. Uh, yep. And... Uh, so is that, where, is that the direction of travel here? Well, it, it could well be. Uh, I'm just going to say that's a very interesting expression uh, as a woman that uh, that lady's used because I, I know for a fact that when a lady used that many years ago, that expression many years ago at the London School of Economics, the reply from a lecturer was, what makes you think you're a woman? And uh, this was the very early days of the attack on uh, on people knowing what their sexuality is. So we're using a bit of black humour, but uh, if we've got Scottish MPs who are going to wear a mask for life, I think they should get on with it from today. Don't pussyfoot around, get that mask on, get wearing it for life. And presumably some people are going to want to wear it as a fashion accessory. But uh, we'll leave it there, yes. perhaps. Moving on to, uh, to vaccines then. Uh, well, no, just before we come on to that, uh, here's the BBC. COVID studies to examine virus link with ethnicity. Now, this is uh, this is really important uh, because this is, as I said earlier, race is one of the issues that's being uh, driven through this whole thing. Uh, COVID studies to examine virus link with ethnicity, ethnicity. Well, the question is, is this understood already? Um, 
We've highlighted this. This is from Scientific, Scientific American. We highlighted this a couple of weeks ago. Another reason vitamin D is important, it gets T-cells uh, going. Um, and so vitamin D is a key component in the immune system. It's a requirement. It's stated in many, many articles. Here's another one from uh, the MS Society, new insights into the role of vitamin D in our immune system. Uh, here's one from Science Daily, vitamin D crucial to activate, activating immune defenses. Um, and of course, when we start looking at the types of people that have vitamin D deficiency, now I was speaking to a doctor yesterday who said that in his experience, uh, he doesn't know very many people at all, or has, in his professional experience, he hasn't met very many people at all that don't have some kind of, of uh, vitamin D deficiency. But vitamin D deficiency starts to build as we get older. Uh, and uh, this article here, Vitamin D Deficiency, the Silent Epidemic of the Elderly, well, of course, one of the uh, key demographics of people suffering the worst from uh, COVID-19 is the elderly. Uh, and uh, this is one uh, reason why. And we could say they were kept locked up out of the sunlight in, in, uh, in uh, poorly ventilated spaces. Well, ab absolutely. Uh, then what have we got here? Role of vitamin D, sorry, role of vitamin D deficiency in, B in BAME, medical emetic deaths. Uh, this is a, a, a Guardian article here. Um, and uh, well, what are they talking about? The truth of the matter is, this is not a racist comment. The truth of the matter is that people with darker skin absorb less vitamin D in the UK. The sunlight is not strong enough compared to their native uh, environment. Uh, and uh, so they uh, don't absorb the same levels of vitamin D as the rest of us. This is a key aspect of it. And also this, uh, this is another one from the Association of Anesthesiologists. Sorry, Anesthesiologists. I can't see that. Uh, but anyway, vitamin D supplementation. Oh, thank you. Uh, yes. Vitamin D supplementation and uh, BAME healthcare workers. Uh, so this is a, another article on the same subject. Um, and uh, then the question is: Can vitamin D lower your risk of COVID-19? This is from Healthline. The first line of it says this: uh, Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. And this is another key point: uh, People who are overweight and obese. Um, store the, the the fat absorbs the vitamin d doesn't release it again so even so even if you have sufficient vitamin d in your body it's being taken trapped. away from the role it's trapped uh, within the fat uh, and so here we have evidence from multiple sources of the three key demographics the elderly those that are obese uh, and uh, the people from the bame community um, all having a worse experience with covid19 and all suffering the same uh, problem, which is uh, worse vitamin D deficiency than others. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is a key, a key part of it and something that needs to be understood a lot better or at least talked about a lot more. Indeed. Yeah. So where are we? Excuse me. Where are we coming back to, Mike? We're coming back to the fact we need to get truth and facts and accurate statistics onto the table so that we can have our scientists and our medical experts making the proper decisions instead of this use of propaganda and fake science in order to drive another agenda. Yes, this is where we are. Uh, but uh, good news, Brian, good news, because uh, another 60 million doses of uh, Corona vaccine on the way. None of these have been uh, approved yet. Uh, the tests aren't complete, uh, but we're already committing commercially to uh, handing out uh, 
deals to produce these. So this is an agreement with GSK and Sanofi Pasteur. Uh, it increases the UK's chances of getting access to a safe and effective vaccine, apparently by adding a new type of vaccine candidate to the UK's growing portfolio. So we now have a portfolio of vaccine candidates. Uh, so this agreement with GSK and Sanofi Pasteur uh, will supply the UK with 60 million doses of their COVID-19 vaccine, which is based on existing DNA-based technology used to produce their flu vaccine. Um, so this will undoubtedly result in uh, taking their flu vaccine and adding uh, you know, uh, protein spike uh, uh, DNA to that so that it, it, it can uh, attach to antibodies and so on or create antibodies. Uh, now, here's what... Uh, Alex Sharma had to say about this, our scientists and researchers are racing to find a safe and effective vaccine at a, at a speed and scale never seen before. What fascinates me about this is they chose the business secretary to, uh, <laughs> to, to be the spokesperson yeah. for this particular and, deal. And, and obviously there's a problem because you've put the word safe in there. They've got to find a safe one. So they haven't got a safe one at the moment no. because otherwise it would have been announced. But it's not safe. Um, and uh, we've got to push it out as fast as possible. Now, well, he went on to say, that while progress is truly remarkable, the fact <laughs> remains that there are no guarantees. Uh, it's important that we secure early access to a diverse range of promising vaccine candidates. Um, so, is they uh, going to test it on Alec himself? I think he should put his arm well, he, forward for he, a few jabs. He should. Um, and so the, now, the structure of novel coronavirus spike protein solved in just weeks uh, is this report. Um, and uh, so this is uh, because they're saying, I've, I've put this up because they're making the point that the, that the immune system fights back in multiple ways, including by producing antibodies to neutralize the uh, virus. These antibodies bind to the spike protein on the surface of the coronavirus and prevent them from entering the cells. GSK and Sanofi's vaccine includes the coronavirus spike protein and the immune-boosting adjuvant to trigger a strong and long-lasting immune response including the production of neutralizing antibodies against COVID-19, especially in the elderly. Right, so we're, we're all feeling secure. Well, I'm feeling less secure than you are, Mike, because I'm a little bit further down the, uh, down the line. Um, but I don't, I don't feel any comfort from this at all. Well, don't worry. As I say, they've got four, now got four different vaccine classes uh, that the government has secured to date. Uh, the, uh, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is one. Uh, mRNA vaccines, this is uh, BioNTech and Pfizer and Imperial College, uh, inactivated whole virus vaccines from uh, Valneva uh, and protein adjuvant vaccines from Agamemnon. Agamemnon yeah. So there you go, that's, uh, that's where we're at at the moment, and, plus, and plus this new one from GSK and Sanofi. And presumably all the profits will be put back into the care system. Uh, indeed, not. Yeah. Uh, but uh, let's get back to the AstraZeneca one, of course, because the question is, does it need approval? Now, as we have mentioned on a number of occasions, uh, we there is this question of the fact that a deal has been done with AstraZeneca to provide millions of doses of their vaccine before any approval has been given for the vaccine. And my question then was, and indeed uh, a freedom of information request has gone in now on this. Uh, the question is, has this deal, has AstraZeneca been given uh, guarantees to be, be paid for the vaccine, whether or not it ends up being approved? Or in fact, if they've been told that the approval will be given no matter the results of the clinical trials. Uh, so that's the question that, ha that has to be asked. Uh, but uh, Brian, that's supposed to be answered by the 13th of August. It's unlikely that it will be. Uh, and it turns out that uh, the reason for that is because in England and Wales, at least, 
um, the uh, information commissioner has given government departments a free free reign just to do whatever they like. They no longer have to uh, reply within 20 working days. Um, and uh, so the uh, information commissioner is saying uh, we will continue to accept new information access complaints, uh, but we'll take a pragmatic approach to resolving these complaints. We'll recognise that the reduction in organisations' resources could impact their ability to respond to access requests or address backlogs uh, where they need to prioritise other work to the current crisis. Uh, we understand that there have been extreme circumstances where public authorities have had no option but to temporarily reduce or suspend elements of their information function. Uh, well, so, so freedom of information function. Now, what's interesting in Scotland, uh, they initially took this approach, but actually, in the mid, uh, towards the end of May, uh, the Scottish government reversed that situation, or the, the Scottish Information Commission reversed that situation, um, and uh, they went back to their 20-day deadline. Uh, for freedom requirement of for freedom of information. Yeah. Um, so it's only in England and Wales that there's a problem apparently. Um, and uh, well, I think it's you know in times of crisis that you find out who the the really capable organisations are, and if they use the crisis as an excuse as an excuse to to just not bother anymore, then uh, that's a bit of a failure. But it's also a failure on behalf of the information commissioner who isn't you know, requiring them to maintain a standard. Yeah, and of course, why would you want to suppress freedom of information? There's only one answer, and that is to keep stuff which should be in the public domain secret, which is uh, what the government specialises in. Absolutely. Although, of course, it did have a minister for transparency at one stage in David Cameron's regime, who was, uh, I believe, the Conservative MP Francis Maud. So that was... That was very good. But that role's now so transparent it no longer <laughs> exists, is that it? Yeah, well, no, it's gone a bit of pake. All yeah, oh, right, OK. Uh, OK, so if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us help us out there. That would be much appreciated. Now, tomorrow evening at 7.30, uh, the first episode, it's really a pilot of uh, David Ellis's new programme, is uh, coming on air. Uh, he's going to look at the issue of lawfare. This is the uh, legal framework that the military is required to operate under uh, and the effect that that's having on British military personnel past and present, uh, plus our uh, relationships with the United States and the European Union. Uh, and that uh, includes an interview with Dennis Hutchings, who uh, is a military veteran who served in Northern Ireland in the 1970s uh, and who is being... Uh, uh, brought to court in February on the charge of attempted murder from an incident that happened uh, during his time there. Um, so uh, it's, it's an interesting situation that we have uh, where because the rules of engagement aren't clear uh, or at least are being, seem to be being applied retrospectively, that, that uh, people who uh, served in Northern Ireland and the British military are being prosecuted for events there, whereas um, the IRA got a, a free uh, pass as a result yeah. of the Good Friday Agreement. So this is a, 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 a difficult situation, a difficult topic to discuss, uh, but uh, an extremely important one. And I'm glad that um, Dave Ellis is taking it on uh, because, of course, it's not being dealt with properly um, by the mainstream media and the BBC in particular. So I think we're going to look forward to that. Well, let's just jump back a little bit to the Royal Society. And uh, we're talking about COVID and guidance. But uh, earlier in the news, I pointed out that if you looked at uh, this summary by the Royal Society, as well as talking about uh, face coverings, uh, they had 
highlighted this, social behavioural factors are vital to understanding public adherence to wearing face masks and coverings, including public understanding of virus transmission, risk perception, trust, altruism, individual traits, perceived barriers. So we're just not bright enough, uh, Mike, the average member of the public is just not bright enough to be able to given, be given clear factual information and make a decision. Uh, the government has got to be in there controlling how we think and behave. Uh, we've been warning about this ever since uh, we started to expose the political charity Common Purpose. So we're going back to the uh, very um, uh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, but of course, the government's come on a long way since then. So in this Royal Society document, you can come to a section which shows this. So they've got an example of public messaging about face coverings, UK government, the 27th of June, and they've used the Prime Minister's uh, own Twitter account. And uh, what we've got is a picture of a lady with an NHS logo top right. She's wearing a blue face mask. And uh, the text underneath says, face coverings make the shop safer. And the comment uh, on this is that the pros are that it's good, it's altruistic, it's, it's uh, asymptomatic, it's about protecting others. Good, clear covering, it's got a cloth, it's not a surgical mask, but this is all good. And uh, the diagram's highlighted. So this isn't just putting out a picture to give people the idea of what's going on. Everything in this picture is being considered, and we mean everything, because here's the cons. So we've got bad, the othering of older vulnerable groups. So we've used an older lady and this is not necessarily good. So bad, othering of older vulnerable group, least likely to break the rules. So we don't want to attack this age group because these are the people who are going to do what the government says. We want to be attacking other age groups. But the expression is unclear and it's on a quote, ominous grey background. Now, of course, one of the things that masks are doing for everybody wearing them is that you're taking away facial expression. And that's a key means by which we communicate. But here's the level of the behavioural psychology. So what else is bad? Well, she's wearing a scarf, the least effective cloth covering. What else is bad? It's unclear. Above, when you go to the shop text on the photo, suggests in the shop. Well, we've got in the shop now because we have to wear them in the shop. Mm. Bad, the focus is only protecting others and not self-protection. So let's remember that in 2010, the government pushed out a document called Mindspace, and in it they said that people's behaviours will be changed and they will not know, or if they do realise their behaviour has changed, they will not know how we, the government, did it. So this is unbelievably dangerous stuff. Now just contrast it, this happens to be Walmart, so it's America. But uh, we've really got the same thing going on here. We're asking everyone to wear face coverings when they enter our stores for their safety and the safety of others. And it's unfortunate that some individuals have taken this pandemic as an opportunity to create a distressing situation for customers and associates in our store. And this is because two naughty people went in with swastika um, masks. And actually, from what I saw, they were making the point that the draconian 
uh, ruling that you had to wear a mask was something out of the Nazi party. But it went down very badly at Walmart because Walmart is only there for the safety of individuals and the safeties of others. It's nothing to do with big profits. Um, but um, we got more from the Daily Mail. Um, thank you to the person who pointed this one out to us. Parents should not buy face masks for children under three because they can cause choking and suffocation. Now, partly that's because a child could pull at that mask and end up eating it and choking. But that's not all the warning was about, because the warning said that actually masks interfere with children's breathing. Uh, but apparently it doesn't because the government hasn't done a risk assessment on it, Mike. Uh, so they're safe except when they're not. So this was part of the text. Parents should not buy face masks for children under three because they can cause choking and suffocation. Public Health England has warned. So what rule did the government bring in? Well, uh, children under 11 um, don't have to wear masks. Well, why is that then? Uh, it's all confusing, isn't it? As every aspect of this has been from the beginning. It is. That's why Corona is confused. Right. So let's come back on to the uh, ramping up the fear. And thank you for this. This is off social media. I'm taking it at face value as sent through. But it's CNN with a report which appears to be a TV screen capture. And the headline is coronavirus pandemic. South Africa surpasses 300,000 plus cases, 14,000 deaths. And what has been said above it is CNN, really, our death rate in South Africa has just reached 4,600, definitely not 14,000 pathetic fear-mongering tactics. Now, I did a quick check on the statistics, and even today we're only showing that it's up to about 7,257 deaths. So clearly, if CNN at any time was claiming 14,000, this was, uh, was not correct. It was fear mongering. But interesting that they're hyping up deaths in South Africa. Now, if you haven't got enough deaths, who do you need, Mike? The BBC. The BBC. So let's bring in the BBC uh, because there aren't enough deaths in South Africa. So the BBC got their reporters going and here's the headline. Coronavirus in South Africa, why the low fertility rate may be misleading. We need more deaths, Mike. I think that's fatality rate. Uh, sorry, fatality. <laughs> fatality, I beg your pardon. Fatality rate may be misleading. Yeah. Uh, we can see that there's a few glasses issues in the studio and I'm, <laughs> I'm becoming at a point where I can accept it. So here we are. BBC short on facts, big on fear. Fog of war is the number one reason why the... Fertility rate may be misleading. Fatality rate. I've done it again. Yeah. Don't I beg worry. your pardon. Fog of war. Be wary of statistics. What are they talking about? Well, they're simply saying that you can't trust statistics in South Africa. But that's also true in UK. Why doesn't the BBC run the same story? Uh, Don't know. Good question. Fear of hospitals. Apparently people in, in uh, South Africa have got a fear of hospitals. They don't want to go near them. They're keeping away. But that happened here as That's well. That's happening here as well. Yeah. Uh, beware white elephants. Well, what is the white elephant? It's a, <coughs> excuse me, a giant field hospital that nobody's ever gone to. Oh, would that be Nightingale, you mean? Well, we've got the equivalent in UK. Yes. We've got the equivalent in UK. So nothing to do with any detail about fertility rates. No, fatality rates. Fatality rates. Yes. 
I'm, I'm having a really bad day. Yeah. And here to stay, COVID is like the weather. It's always here. So the article rams home to the reader that we're not going to get rid of COVID because people in South Africa are saying it's like the weather. It uh, may change, but it doesn't actually go away. But the good news is that local communities are standing up to fight it. And uh, it then ends with exposing the rot. Apparently, the corrupt government is using the crisis to carry out dirty deeds. No, no, there couldn't uh, be. Couldn't be, could it? Wouldn't happen in this country. <laughs> so just outstanding. But the BBC desperately worried because enough people aren't dying of COVID in uh, South Africa. And not only are they not dying, they're looking after themselves in local communities and they're not using the field hospitals. Amazing stuff. Uh, well, another viewer brought up this to do with propaganda. They said that this video was banned within hours on YouTube, a video containing several doctors on Capitol Hill, Washington, on the 27th of July, talking about the pandemic and the use of hydro. Uh, Hydroxychloroquine, always have problems with that, especially today. One doctor from Texas says she has a 100% success rate, even with the very old. One of the doctors is Dan Erickson from California, who's had millions of views on previous videos, but they've all been banned. Now, I haven't been able to watch all of it, but many people have and said it's absolutely incredible. But a group of doctors speaking publicly and the opening statement from this lady doctor is we're not being held down by the virus as much as we are by the spider web of fear. And I think that's pretty accurate, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, let's move on to economic news now. And uh, well, this is Spirits Business website. Uh, lockdown causes 30 billion pounds worth of sales losses for pubs and bars. Uh, so that's uh, the news that uh, the hospitality sector has uh, lost 30 billion so far in the quarter second sorry this is just the second quarter of 2020 um and uh well so that's 67 percent down or sorry 87 percent down compared to last year um absolutely incredible um but uh well what's the bbc saying business rescue package package has delayed the inevitable uh is really what they're talking about today um and uh, they're talking about zombie companies. Now, what are zombie companies? Well, these are businesses that uh, that's, have cash flow and so can function day to day, but that cash flow is based on debt and they actually aren't producing enough profit in order to service that debt. Uh, and so they're, they're suggesting or they're quoting the uh, Institute for Fiscal Studies, who's warning that uh, there's going to be a massive rise in these types of companies and ultimately they're going to go out of business. Um, Stuart Adam from the IFS said, I think it's pretty much everyone agrees. A perfect recovery is not realistic. It's going to be bad. Uh, getting new businesses, starting up and hiring people is the kind of thing that needs to happen in the coming year or two. Well, depending on how many people end up unemployed once the, uh, the government support begins to be withdrawn and uh, depending on how many people end up out on the streets once the uh, requirement or the, the, the holiday for paying mortgages and rents uh, ends in the coming uh, days and weeks. So uh, things are, are going to get very, very bad. Uh, but don't worry, because RBS, sorry, Matt West, <laughs> is going to Good ride work. to our rescue. Now, of course, uh, RBS has rebranded itself, the Nat West Group, because it wants to get rid of the RBS brand. That's Royal Bank of Scotland. And why would they want to do that? Well, of course, we're now in effectively a depression. Uh, and if we think back to the 2008 
recession as a result of the financial crisis. Uh, what was RBS doing? Uh, well, according to The Guardian in uh, 2012, uh, 2014, sorry, RBS was cleared of forcing clients into insolvency to buy, buy up assets. But unfortunately for The Guardian, two years later, um, some emails came to light, internal communications came to light, which demonstrated that RBS had, in fact, systematically destroyed its customers' businesses for profit. Leaked files show is the headline from The Independent. Uh, now, we've covered this in the past uh, because they were playing all sorts of games in order to uh, uh, asset strip companies that were going out of business as a result of the, uh, of the financial crisis. Uh, and, of course, many of those businesses were, in fact, uh, still actually viable if they'd been given a little bit of extra support. Um, so RBS has decided to rebrand to, uh, to, to NatWest Group. Uh, NatWest Group saying that they will absolutely support uh, any small and medium-sized businesses that are suffering uh, under this uh, current economic crisis. Uh, well, I will believe it when I see it. Maybe they want to uh, get offer some redress for some of the stuff that they've done in the past. But um, as far as I know, the people uh, that have been campa campaigning on the issue of the treatment uh, of them and their businesses in 2008 by RBS haven't actually uh, reached any the end of their their troubles, and they haven't uh, uh, had any redress from RBS at all. Uh, that's correct, Mike. But I think we can say on a good point that, uh, unfortunately, his name escapes me. Um, the former Thames Valley Police Commissioner is still very hard at work supporting people who've lost a lot of money as a result of the actions by uh, high street banks. So it hasn't gone away. In fact, there's more and more evidence of uh, the dirty dealings of the banks uh, coming to the surface. Now, more good news, Brian, because uh, the UK is about to uh, uh, get involved in its first ever space launch. Well, that was the headline this morning, and I'm putting a question mark on the end of it, because would it be the UK's first ever space launch? Well, this is a public consultation on the regulations that are going to support the space industry, uh, and uh, this are, these are going to be regulations on top of the Space Industry Act 2018. So this uh, consultation, public consultation is open today, um, and uh, this will result in the first ever launch into space, uh, from British soil. So it's, it's not quite the UK's first ever space launch. However, I do accept that the previous one was quite a long time and it didn't happen in the UK, but maybe the UK government is, prefers to forget that. But let's let's move on. Uh, Grant Shapson, uh, who's the Transport Secretary, saying uh, the UK space sector can strengthen our national capabilities, create high skilled jobs and drive future economic growth across the UK. Well, it could do those things, but only if we do it right. And, of course, we were doing it right at one point, but then the British government decided that we wouldn't bother doing it right anymore. So just for those that don't know, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about uh, this. Uh, this is Black Arrow. There's uh, a close-up of what it looked like. Um, and uh, Black Arrow uh, carried out four test launches between 1969 and 71. It was a three-stage satellite carrier rocket. It was designed to be able to accept a fourth stage, which was based on another project called Blue Streak uh, for larger payloads. Uh, in this case, uh, the final launch uh, carried Prospero X3, which was this satellite, into orbit. This was the first and only successful orbital launch carried out by the UK, and it took place three months following the sudden cancellation of the project. The only reason the launch took place at all was that the rocket had already been shipped to the launch site, which was in Australia. 
Uh, and so they decided to just go ahead with it, even though the project had been cancelled. Uh, the launch site was scrapped as soon as the launch was completed, and half of the scientists and engineers involved in the project lost their jobs immediately. Uh, Black Knight, Blue Streak and Black Arrow absolutely represented world-beating British engineering. And in fact, it was viewed at the time as such a threat by NASA that NASA attempted uh, to uh, invite the British government uh, to, to uh, launch their satellites via NASA for free. Uh, so they were not going to charge the British government for launching any satellites. Uh, but as soon as uh, this project was cancelled, um, the NASA withdrew that offer. Now, why was the project cancelled? Well, it was cancelled because it, it, the, the whole project got uh, messed up with the or uh, linked into the, the shenanigans were going on about getting us into the, uh, the European Union. Um, and that technology ended up being given to the French uh, and ended up in the Ariane uh, rocket program. We lost that capability, uh, and we are, to this point in time, the only country on the planet that has had a satellite, satellite launching capability and has voluntarily given that thrown up. Thrown it away. Thrown it away. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, well, why are we interested in getting involved in it now? Well, is it anything to do with, uh, with developing the economy, or is it more to do with military and militarization of space? Now, Ben Wallace, as we reported the other day, uh, very concerned that the Russians being provocative in testing what he described as a weapon-like projectile being launched from a satellite, threatening the peaceful use of space. Um, bearing in mind that uh, the UK government has recently announced that they're very interested in the space domain from a military standpoint. And in fact, space is one of, going to be one of the key uh, areas for the defence industry in the coming months and years. Uh, then I think that not only is there hypocrisy uh, in Ben Wallace's position, but there's hypocrisy in uh, the government's position in alleging that this is about uh, uh, civilian uh, economics. It's not. Yeah. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of the news. I'll just say the gentleman's name I'd forgotten. The uh, former Thames Valley Police Commissioner was Anthony Sten Stansfelt, um, doing great work to uh, help uh, people who've suffered from the actions of the banks um, that's all ongoing so you might like to research that online and and see what you can find but we'd also say that of course it's people who are taking these sorts of actions the right actions that ought to get massive public support in order to uh, keep them going uh, tomorrow night 7 30 uk column website also on U uk column youtube channel for david ellis's program yeah and i'll just end by saying uh, we're astonished and we just want to say thank you for everybody who's uh, contributed to um, Ian Crane's um, crowd funder uh, to help pay for medical treatment. Money's still coming into that. It's unbelievably generous. Ian is very, very grateful, as are we. Just delighted to see all that generosity. Um, I do have to say that uh, Ian has been back in hospital for a few days uh, because he, he's he's been under quite a lot of uh, pressure from his condition um, but uh, very shortly he will be back on other treatments as well uh, we'll leave him to tell the wider public about that in due course but we've got a lot of people asking how he's getting on and uh, I've also had a number of people asking me about Melanie Shaw uh, all I can say at the moment is that things are going extremely well uh, for Melanie and uh, I hope that some very positive news will uh, come before the end of the year. 
And that's it for today. Mm. Um, we'll consider the masks as uh, we leave the studio then, Mike. Absolutely. Okay, thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.